on this episode of Here Tell. A story about how family can force difficult conversations about who we are, whether we're ready for them or not. I felt as lifeless as a robot. I remained quiet. There was nothing left to say. I stood up and walked to my room. Now that I knew I wasn't above insults being thrown at me by my mother, I expected anything. She had yelled and cursed at me before, but this hurt more. It wasn't about discipline. Mama was just being mean. My name is Andre Gallant. I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Dorothy Lennon. She's a 2019 graduate of the MFA program. Dorothy lives in Atlanta, where she teaches theater and is the founder of a publication called Dope Sister LLC, a magazine. It's an online magazine, and it's dedicated to black women, and we advocate for their businesses or their struggles or their nonprofit or, you know, whatever it is that they're pushing for that moment. Dorothy produced a number of essays while earning her MFA, primarily about her immediate family. In those stories, Dorothy remained a side character, but she could only avoid the spotlight for so long. Ask Dorothy about a very personal story, about her coming out story, about how she knew she was attracted to women. And she'll say she never got time in the closet. I always say this, (laughs) me being attracted to women... Uh, went over my head when I was in like middle school and high school. Um, one of the the key things that I always like go back to in my mind is the fact that I had a crush on Alicia Keys. The moment that I began to question if you know I might be into women, yeah. my mom called it out like in that same week. She was studying at North Carolina A and T State University in her hometown of Greensboro at the time. Theater and dance were her passions, inside and outside the classroom. If she dated, she dated men. There was this girl who I assumed was a guy, and I thought that she, he <laughs> was attractive until I realized it was a girl. And my friend was like, well, you kind of like pretty men. <laughs> so I was like, oh. And then I realized all of my boyfriends have kind of had like girly features. <laughs> In the past, I write about that too. So it's been a long, like, little clues, and I continued to ignore them until my mom kind of, like, put it out there and made me, forced me to have a conversation with her about it. The first attempt at that conversation with her mother did not go well, and it serves as the instigating conflict in the story Dorothy is going to read. It's part of a long essay she wrote titled... Coming Out. We'll hear Dorothy's story in a bit. If you stick around after, Dorothy, who has a graduate degree in performance studies from New York University, will talk about how her experience in the theater helped turn family members into fleshed out characters on the page, and how she found the confidence to unlock her most authentic voice. So we're going to meet a number of members of your family um, who are all seem like wonderful people and, and great characters in your mm-hmm. piece. Um, but the whole piece hinges on your mother, right? Yeah. So who was she in your life? Just tell me about her. My anger. She is, uh, <laughs> she's a lot of things. She is, without knowing it, she is uh, pushes me really hard um, to be the best that I can possibly be. She's almost like my devil's advocate. <laughs> she makes sure that I think of all things before jumping into a a specific career or, you know, even when going to college, she, you know, I need you to make sure this is what you want to do. This is how you get there and and those type of things. And and then she's also my biggest supporter. Your mother forces a conversation with you, right? Mm -hmm. Why was that conversation taking place at the right or wrong time for you? Um, it well, it was most definitely the wrong time for me. <laughs> um, for, well, one because I wasn't sure myself. It was still one of those. How do I have a conversation without telling a, a lie to my mother? But not being able to complete the conversation because I'm not sure 
you know, what this is for me. Do I call myself a lesbian? I still like men. Do I, like, I was going back and forth with those things. Um, And in the end, I decided, because even at the least, if I was bisexual, you know, that could come out later. But I decided to go full force and say, yes, I like women. You know, I think I'm a lesbian. So that that could be the hardest part of the conversation. And if I take it back and say, hey, great news, I might just be bisexual or that was a phase. I might, you know, I could take it back. So I just wanted to have the hard conversation up front once she asked. But that that was tough. I didn't want to have it then because I wasn't sure. You're going to drop us into um, a scene and it's sort of like you reflecting on, on the present and the past that's kicked off by this conversation from your mother and she says something very intense to you that mm-hmm. that jump starts what you write about what did she say and how did it impact you she, she said if i wanted to have three sons i would have had them and that just it made me crumble a little bit because outside in the world she's the most understanding person in our family I mean she has 11 brothers and sisters and she's the most understanding Um, her favorite sister is a lesbian so it was really weird to hear that come from her without saying at least to say hey I don't understand this this is left field for me why haven't you talked to me instead she said that you expected something else from her yeah I expected the nurture that she gives even when we make the worst of decisions Uh, you know my siblings and I and she's still right there like this is why this is a learning lesson is what she would normally Mm -hmm. do and I don't think she had the tools for something like this but with a favorite sister, I expected, you know, a little more than than that. And now, here's Dorothy Lennon reading from Coming Out. Like most kids, I began losing baby teeth at the age of five. Sometimes I lost them at school, and all I could think about was getting home to put my tooth under my pillow and wait for the tooth fairy to bring me a dollar. One night, when I was six, I woke up to a tooth rolling around in my mouth. It had fallen out while I slept. I was so excited, I ran into my parents' room to wake my mother. Mama, I whispered. Mama, I said again as I nudged her to wake up. My tooth fell out. That's great, she mumbled. I ran out of her room down the hall to the bathroom. I wrapped my tooth in tissue and put it under my lifesaver pillow that was no longer bright and colorful. The rainbow colors had darkened over the years from blue magic hair grease. By morning, I hurriedly flipped over my pillow. My tooth was still there. I knew it was the middle of the night, but Mama responded to me. I wondered why the tooth fairy didn't show. I was at the table eating breakfast when Mama came in the living dining area. Mama, the tooth fairy didn't come last night. Your tooth came out? Mama asked, surprised. Yes, I told you last night. In that moment, I knew Mama was the tooth fairy. That was one of the first times I felt betrayed by my mom. The next time wouldn't be until she told me if she wanted three sons, she would have had them. The notion that my sexuality somehow changed my gender was something I never would have expected from her. She was usually sweet. The comment about me being gay was coming from the same woman who on my fifth birthday took me to the Central Carolina Fair after working all day. Mama came home, put my relaxed hair into two ponytails that fell just above my shoulders. She twisted them to the end. She put me in a pink short set romper, white sneakers, and a dark blue jean jacket in case I got too chilly. I was always cold. 
I rode every ride I could and got my two favorite things at the fair, cotton candy and a candy apple. We stayed until it began getting dark. Mama made each of her kids' birthdays special, which means she probably did something equally special just two days before my birthday for my brother OJ. I understood the difference between Mama being sweet and Mama having to discipline me. She had yelled and cursed at me before, but this hurt more. It wasn't about discipline. Mama was just being mean. I spent a great deal of my life believing that everything Mama said or did was right. Mama was the first person I had ever admired. So when she reacted the way she did about my feelings towards girls, a part of me felt like I was wrong to like women. When I was younger, Mama smoked Newport cigarettes, watched the soap operas The Young and the Restless, Bold and the Beautiful, As the World Turns, and Guiding Light in that order. Her favorite local news station was WFMY News 2. So whenever I stayed at my Uncle Jerry's house and watched his wife, Aunt Linda, smoke Salem cigarettes and watch Channel 8 News, I would whisper to myself, she's doing it all wrong. Mama had that type of influence on me. But this time, it was Mama who was doing it all wrong. She was forgetting I was her sensitive daughter who needed guidance and understanding, who needed her. It never occurred to me that Mama could have been more upset about me tarnishing the perfect image she worked so hard to create than me actually being a lesbian. More often than not, Mama reminded my brothers and I with a pointed finger in our faces and a curled lip that we had better not show our asses in public or she would wear our asses out. The reminder was irrelevant. We were well-behaved children. However, that same threat applied at my grandparents' house. When we get in here, don't you ask for a damn thing, you hear me? You speak and then you keep your mouth shut. My grandparents' house usually felt like a doctor's office where all the other kids got to play while I sat beside Mama. I was a guest at my grandparents' house, but my cousins Chandra and Rakim lived there. Their mothers, my aunts, lived there too. Chandra and Rakim ran up and down the stairs, fixed bowls of cereal that I dared not ask for, and watched TV. I gambled with asking for some water. I think Mama prided herself on having well-behaved children, even at my grandparents' house. But I imagine everyone thinking of us as robots. After the gender insult, I felt as lifeless as a robot. I remained quiet. There was nothing left to say. I stood up without looking at her and walked to my room. My legs felt heavy. My chest felt heavy. I didn't eat that night. I've heard stories of how parents react to the news of their child being gay. Sometimes it was violent. Now that I knew I wasn't above insults being thrown at me by my mother, I expected anything. While I was in my room, my phone rang. It was my dad. My parents been separated for the third and final time, but never divorced. Hey, nutbug, Mama told me what's going on. I stood in the middle of my floor, clenching my teeth. My muscles tightened as if my body was preparing to take a blow. I was ready for whatever he had to say. I still love you, he continued. I loosened up the grip I had on myself. I didn't speak. I let the tears flow silently. You still you. You're still the same old nutbug, and if Mama can't see that, then you can come live with me. I felt like I was Daddy's little girl all over again. The acceptance felt like he physically hugged me while wrapped in a heated blanket. I hadn't felt this way about Daddy in years. Growing up, I could do no wrong in Daddy's eyes, even when it came to Mama. One night, as a small kid, I was in bed, upset because no one else was in bed. My mother, father, and brothers were watching TV. I got out of bed, stood in the hall, and said, I can't sleep. 
Try harder, Mama said without even looking at me. I ran back into the room, buried my face in my lifesaver's pillow, sobbing. I was dramatic that way. I tried again. I stood in the hall. I just don't think it's fair that Shad and OJ get to stay up. Mama shot a look at me that stung more than the whipping she wanted to give. Daddy rushed to his feet to save me. I'll talk to her. He directed me into the bathroom. He was six one, but he kneeled to be eye level with me. His deep and intimidating voice softened when he spoke to me. Listen, Nugbug, Shad and OJ are much older than you. But they have school too, I whined. I know they do. Daddy explained that they had bedtimes too, just not the same as mine. Now you're going to go out there, tell Mama goodnight, and go to bed, okay? Okay, I whined. We walked out of the bathroom. Good night, Mama. I love you. Good night, my ass. You better get your ass in that bed and go to sleep. I was distraught. I ran in the room screaming. This time, I wanted them to hear me cry. Dorothy, Mama called. Yes, ma'am, I said timidly. I thought for sure I would get a whipping now. Come here, sweetie. I got out of bed and slowly walked down the hall for dramatic effect. Daddy told me that he told you to say goodnight and reminded me that you don't like to be yelled or cursed at, so I'm sorry. Okay, I said with a smirk on my face looking at Daddy. I ran back to my room smiling. Daddy had my back. Recently, Mama mentioned that Daddy's bond with me was different from the one he had with the boys. Maybe because he had to take care of you on his own. I had postpartum depression, she said. Mama had only realized her condition after she saw Brooke Shields on Oprah in 2005. I was 21 by then. Daddy was always an active father. He was my brother's little league coach. He taught me how to ride a bike without training wheels at the age of four. He held my hand at the dentist when I was 15 and sang Monster Mash and did the silly dance to make me feel better. I appreciated him having my back when I felt like Mama didn't, but I couldn't live with him. Daddy moved out once when I was about six or seven. He moved back in when I was nine. He moved out again when I was 12. That was the last time Mama and Daddy lived together until I was 21. I focused too much on the things I disliked about Daddy. His drinking played a part in the distance I kept from him. I didn't take into consideration that Daddy grew up in an abusive home. His parents blamed him for everything. He and his sister were the ears of the family. Their parents were deaf. Once, my grandpa woke Daddy up in the middle of the night. All I heard was, Harve! My dad said, attempting to reproduce the deaf sound of his father calling his name. The light came on, and I was snatched out of bed. Someone stole the car. We should have heard it. I could see the little boy in him when he told those stories. He tried hard to win his parents' affection, but their love language was sometimes a skillet to the head. Daddy never succeeded in satisfying his parents. My mother recently admitted that she never allowed Daddy to believe he was enough either. She constantly tried to make him her father. My father was perfect in my eyes, and that's what I wanted Harvey to be. But Daddy couldn't be perfect, and he used drinking to cope with that. Becoming an alcoholic was inevitable, according to Daddy. A relative offered him his first drink at age nine. He told him that he was a kid and didn't drink. You're a Lennon, aren't you? You're an Indian, aren't you? Then you're gonna drink, the relative said. If you ask Daddy about his ethnicity... He would say he was a black man, and only a black man. However, my grandfather told me that he never questioned his racial history. When he was a boy, the adults told him if anyone ever asked, he was Native American. 
My dad was usually mistaken for Puerto Rican or just biracial, so he never had to deal with the stereotypes concerning Native Americans and alcohol. Daddy shrugged it off, thinking this man didn't know what he was talking about. But everyone in his family drank, and he knew it. I didn't have it in me to live with Daddy and his self-deprecating drunkenness. For a moment, I questioned if Daddy would have been this supportive if it were one of my brothers coming out as gay. I never asked. Now that he's gone, I can't say for sure what would have transpired. But it isn't irrational to think he would have called them faggots and punched them in the chest. I didn't want to think about how lopsided the acceptance could have been. I just needed the warm embrace. The next morning, after Mama and I talked, I had class. We lived in an 1,100-square-foot, three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath home. It was hard to avoid my mom, but I tried. I showered, dressed, and raced for the door. Mama was sitting in her usual spot on the sofa, in her pajamas. She looked like she had been crying. It was obvious that she wasn't going to work. Bye, she said. Bye, I said without looking at her. I love you, she said. I looked at her for a moment. I love you too. It wasn't the same. I didn't feel that heated blanket embrace I received from my dad. Perhaps I had my emotional armor on when it came to her. I wasn't ready to trust her with my vulnerability. My girlfriend Rokia was the only person at school who knew. As the week went on, I didn't think about it much, as long as I was out of the house. I lived my life. That was the only choice I'd given myself. I wanted my mother's approval, but I wasn't going to alter who I was to get it. I also still wasn't sure if I was a lesbian or bisexual. I realized we probably would have had the same conversation either way. By the end of the week, Mama asked to speak with me in her room. She apologized for getting so upset. She didn't like that everyone came to her to talk, but her own daughter couldn't. I searched for ways to tell her that it's possible I've always liked girls, but I had a hard time accepting that myself. Not because I thought it was wrong, but because I couldn't believe I didn't realize it sooner. My crush on Alicia Keys should have been the first sign. I choked on the words before they could come out. I felt different. I knew my friendships would be different. I broke down crying. My mother pulled me close to her as I sat on the edge of her bed. She rocked me in her arms. I'm so sorry, she whispered. I pulled away to get myself together. I've always looked at girls and thought they were pretty, I said while gasping for air. All women admire one another, Mama said. I don't think I admire the same way. Oh, she took a moment to reflect. You're my daughter, and I love you. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I am not going to stop loving you. She hugged me. She asked who I was dating. I told her Rokia. She said something about her being pretty in a shocking tone that insinuated that Rokia was too pretty to be gay. She also told me that I needed to be sure I was gay because it wouldn't be fair to Rokia if I wasn't. I chuckled. I wasn't sure if I was straight, but no one thought if I was being unfair to former boyfriends. I decided to stay in that night. I didn't want to take advantage of my mother's apology by hanging out with Rokia all night. But I no longer felt sick to my stomach in the presence of my mother. I wondered if the seasick feeling would occur every time an immediate family member found out I was dating a girl. A few weeks went by before my mother asked me when I was planning to tell my family. I didn't sit the family down to tell them whenever I had a boyfriend. Why do I have to tell them I have a girlfriend? They don't consult me with their life decisions. True, she said as she shrugged her shoulders. She remained in my doorway. The silence was awkward. I would normally be the one to break it, but it wasn't my awkwardness to deal with. I let her stand there for as long and as quiet as she liked. You know, 
I thought it was Danielle, she finally said. Ew, my best friend. Well, y'all are so close. Because she's my best friend. I always thought people were gay because they've been molested or raped. Well, I've been neither, so. So, is this sex? Nope. I'm not talking about this with you, Ma. Okay, okay, I'm sorry, Mama said with her hands thrown up in surrender. She walked away. My body relaxed when she left. Over the next year, my family frequently saw Rokia. Sometimes she visited alone. Other times she came with our group of friends. My brother Shad grew fond of Rokia. We had a family function at the house. It was beginning to get dark outside, around 8 p.m. It was warm, but the breeze in the air was crisp. Shad asked me to take him home. When we got in the car, he asked me to hook him up with Rokia. No, I said assertively. Why? Because I said so. Come on, man. There are a million other girls to choose from. They don't have to be my friends. But, I cut him off. Look, she wouldn't like you anyway. How you know? Because you're not her type. No man is. It was silent. I don't remember hearing the radio, but I'm certain it was on. Wait, so she likes girls? Yes. I gripped the steering wheel hard. I braced myself for the follow-up question. Now I knew the seasick feeling would appear every time I had to have this conversation. Does she like you? He asked slowly. Yes. Okay, whew. Can I light a cigarette in your car? Normally, no, but yeah, roll down the window. Do you like her back? Yes. Shaw took puffs of his cigarette faster than I had ever seen him do before. He made sure to blow the smoke out of the window. Shaw couldn't hide his emotions. He has the biggest eyes, and he uses them to make expressions. He either made you laugh or worried the hell out of you. I was worried. I realized I cared about what Shaw thought. Shaw was like a second father to me. He was six years older than I was. He babysat me, taught me how to cook breakfast when I was eight. He did dangerous magic tricks when a, with a can of brood and a lighter for my amusement. So what? You don't love me anymore? I said defensively. Of course I do. I'm always love you. Just don't grow a beard. I tilted my head to the side, the way dogs do when they're perplexed. Then I chuckled. My chuckle grew into belting laughter, and he joined me. The thought of two women being intimate with one another must have meant to my family that one had to become a man. Shad's comment was just as ridiculous as Mama's comment, but his made me laugh. It's been 15 years since Mama pulled me out of the closet. She's the sweet and understanding person I've always known. But I haven't truly embraced my love for women until recently. I thought I had, but I was only free in the company of like-minded people. Now, I'm married, and I can't stop saying wife. My mother and oldest niece attended our union via FaceTime. We went to the Justice of the Peace. My mother and my wife, Dundrell, are like best friends. She introduces Dundrell as my wife and corrects people who calls her my friend. I had to stop Aunt Ruby from calling Dundrell your friend. I said, you know, if you were somebody's wife and people referred to you as his friend, you would be upset. Dundrell is Dorothy's wife. I raised my eyebrows in disbelief. Mama has respected my relationship with women for years. Dundrell is the second woman to have lived in Mama's house. Now, Mama is making everyone around her to respect my relationship as well. To know she corrected Aunt Ruby took me back to childhood when I admired her so much. This time, Mama was right.
you. Thank you for sharing that essay with us at Hearthell. Thanks for having me. What did you find most difficult in writing about yourself in your own life? I had a hard time writing about myself, though I wanted to. Uh, it seemed like a lot of my essays were about everyone else in my family, <laughs> but myself. Um, even when I was present, I never wrote how I felt in the moment. It was always the emotions of the other family members and my siblings, of course. Um, and then trying to get to a place where I was comfortable and vulnerable enough to tell the truth about what it was I was feeling in the moment, knowing that my family could read this or will read this. And how did you get yourself to that, that vulnerable place? Um, well, one, I had to understand that it was my story to tell. Um, I know I, I did talk to them. Uh, that helped a lot. Um, they know what stories I'm going to tell. Um, it took a moment for my brother to get on board, but he's done an interview with me and he, I sent him what I uh, wrote about him as well. And he's okay. Um, I didn't really ask them if I could, because <laughs> it's still my story. Um, but I did let them know they are very well informed on what I've been writing about. And, um, and so that kind of helped. It's like, I put it out there. No one has had any like negative feelings about it, about it. So it allowed me to be as honest as I could possibly be. What came first for you? Um, a, a sort of plot of events or a, a detailing of emotions and memories? How did mm. you take your life and, and give it some structure? Oh, wow. Um, the, the plot of events, I believe, came first. Um, and, but you, can, you could tell in my writing in the beginning because it all read like an outline of sorts without the emotion, without any feeling. Um, it was like, hey, this one time in 1989, this <laughs> thing happened. And moving on, 1990, this. <laughs> so it, it was more of that. Um, and so I, what I did is I did away with outlines altogether. Uh, and in the beginning, I started to do like scene work. Scene one, where's the action in all of scene one? Scene two, where's the action? Scene three. And then um, once I began to write that, I would take another pen, normally a red pen, and say, put, just put in notes so that I can keep the flow of writing. You forgot to tell how you felt here. Mm. And then I'll just keep writing and I'll go back to it later. Um, that helped. And then um, my process shifted um, to where I would just kind of get up in the morning, meditate, and then get in my chair and write every feeling I had about the subject that I was writing about. Um, and it kind of already was in like chronological order mm. so I could sit for maybe two to three hours and write almost pretty much my final draft um, I didn't really edit it much and that has been my process so I think now um, I'd like to think about all the things I'm going to write and just in my head mm. and think about how I felt about them and then when it's ready like it just I just can't hold it anymore I'll get up and write it all I'm not going to defend or trash timelines and, and writing outlines and whatnot, but do you did you you did you find anything helpful from that process? Did it did that timeline creep back in later at no. all? Yeah. No, and coming from my first master's program in the world of academia and trying to write like scholarly journals and things like that, I continue to get stuck in that type of process when wanting to write a story and I don't think they mix well for me. Uh, so I've, I haven't written another outline ever for any of my stories. I, I can't do it because I know that I'll forget. I'll start, I'll end up going online researching what else happened that year. And it'll be a lot of things that end up taking me out of the story. And it'll no, it'll no longer be a personal essay if I do that. Right. Um, and I think something that's 
really engaging about your piece is how effortlessly you can go back and forth in time. Mm -hmm. And typically having like a structure set in stone kind mm -hmm. of anchors at least the writer mm -hmm. in making those jumps back and forth. How did you um, think and handle time as you were writing? Was it even, even after the fact, after the draft? That was... Um it was done purposely, but also a little bit like accidentally. <laughs> One of my notes was, how does Dorothy now feel about Dorothy then? And now it's like, oh, I should start putting that in my pieces. Like, because, you know, you're not necessarily, you don't have the vocabulary to understand exactly how you felt then. So writing as a child, I would say I was hurt. And then I can go back, I can also say, looking back now, I know I felt this, this, and this as an adult. So that's how that became my pattern. So you're telling this story as 13-year-old Dorothy or even 21-year-old Dorothy, um, but you're telling it as the Dorothy now. So talk about how you felt then, put yourself back in that moment, then take yourself out to talk about now. And that just became my pattern. The essay is really propelled by wonderful sections of dialogue. Um, how did you go about recreating those? And, 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 and what are your, 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 your methods for, for writing peppy dialogue like that? <laughs> um, it's funny. I, that kind of comes natural. Um, even now, and I talk to my mom on the phone, and she's telling me something she talked about with her sister, she automatically goes into her sister's voice. And I just kind of picked up on those type of things in my writing as well. But I also, the reason why it's only pockets of it is because those are the conversations I remember verbatim. Mm -hmm. So something else might be, I remember dad saying this, but then something else might be, and then dad said, and I'll quote him and we can go. And instead of me saying, he said, she said back and forth, I'll just make it a full conversation to put the reader in that moment. So I'll try to take out, you know, he said this, and then I said that. I, I'll, I might say he said once, and then the rest of it is just full on conversation so that the reader can feel like they were there in the moment that the conversation was had. Right. Um, and there's even, there, there's some dialogues and other sections of this essay that you didn't read and ones that we cut for time purposes mm -hmm. from here. Um, and so there's multiple interlocutors that you have. Uh, did you c reconnect with those specific people about what was said? Did you go over those conversations with them? Um, no, I didn't. Um, I knew my mom wouldn't remember this when she's upset. She doesn't always remember the thing that she said, which is normally, which is rare because she normally tries to talk with you with a clear head. Right. Um, there are a few things. It, I learned in earlier essays that when I go back and try to talk about the dialogue, there's a lot that she's like, I don't even remember that happening, let alone a conversation about it. And then I would have to go and research and talk to my brothers. And they're like, oh, no, that definitely happened. So I'm like, OK, I knew I wasn't crazy. I know I'm younger than you guys, but I knew I wasn't crazy. Um, so as far as that, we are pretty much on the same level when it comes to no mom said this. And we're like, yeah, that's right. She did say that. So in other essays. Um, I went back to them because I wanted to make sure since I was much younger then, I wanted to make sure I had that dialogue right. But in this particular one uh, and coming out, I didn't I didn't talk to any of them about it. I just it was such a personal thing like this is just my story where the others really were their stories and I happened to be around. Mm. Um, and so I remember so vividly because this is I mean, it's still a part of my life even now. So I remember it so vividly that I didn't think that I needed to go and rock that boat with, you know, what had been said. Right. This, this is your story to own. Right. Were you able to take anything from your performance background, your theater background, and apply it to how you put dialogue on the page? Absolutely. Um, I didn't come into the program like that, which I don't know why I separated the two worlds, but in the end, it really helped. Um, I had to think of myself as a playwright and I, you know, set up the scene, 
what's you know the background information do a character analysis who's your mother who's your father who are your brothers now they're characters so don't judge them be completely honest and write from there so in in this particular one i was able to like weave them all in because i'd had practice with their individual stories um but it was easier because I decided to not make it so personal and make sure that they were characters in my play. Mm -hmm. So now I'm just writing them out in that way. And, and that kind of helped. It, it kind of, if this was on stage, what, what emotion do I need the audience to see that the actor can't necessarily say? And it's like, that's kind of hard to put on page, but if I can visualize that, then I can write what they felt or what I felt in a way, um, I don't know, in a way that like what I would do when I was an actor. So I would do all these character analysis um, on the character I portrayed. And if that character was hurt but silent about it, I would have to show that type of emotion so that the audience can get it. And in, and in this world, I have to write that emotion. But for me, I have to visualize that on stage and then I write it. It seems long, but it's actually a quick process for me to, to do that part, considering that theater is such, you know, my background. I can see it really quick and then pull it forward. Right. Do you have any advice for people without theater background to how to, like, <laughs> is there, like, a, you know, you can sketch that onto um, a, into a notebook somehow? <laughs> yes actually if you look at a play the things that we have to describe in our narrative writing is in parentheses in the play or it's in the about the author and why he did this or you know about the characters um if you think about it like that if you even that's why even in in this process i wish i would have written uh read a few more plays i think i would have caught on to this quicker <laughs> Um, the but secrets you, were within you the whole time. <laughs> right. But if you look at a play and you think about the emotion that that uh, author and director wants you to exude on stage, it's right there in the script. It's just in parentheses or it's just in the last pages of what, you know, that actor should be trying to pull from this character. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're ever in doubt on what do I need to say for this person or what do I need to do? Look at a play. Just look at the script and you'll see like the format of it will help you begin to like just make the brackets disappear mm -hmm. and add that into your story. Your educational and, and professional experiences in performance in the theater. And I wonder what has the what has it been like adding this kind of closed off uh, writerly life to the process of where the end project is not a, 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 a group performance on a, a stage with a giant audience, but a very intimate interaction from your, you know, lonely production into someone's readership. Um, well, one, I'm an introvert, so this works out well for me. <laughs> but um, my role in performance shifted drastically in undergrad um I was a performer and not to toot my own horn but I'd like to think that I was a pretty good performer um and it, and that began to grow but what I noticed is that we didn't have enough writers of color writing our stories and don't get me wrong I love the grapes I I will always reference a raisin in the sun or something from August Wilson but I think those should be the classics that we teach and, and, and for, um, you know, educational purposes that we put on stage in college, but then where's the new work? And so I knew then that I wanted to write. And at the time I thought I wanted to write plays. Um, and so I kind of got out of that. And then my mentor at the time was like, your research papers are great. You should write scholarly theater journals. 
And I thought about that too. And I was like, no, but I, I have actual stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to do that the way I wanted. So I found this program. <laughs> I'd like Googled it and looked it up um, for that purpose. So I, I've kind of been leaning towards the writing, which is not this big production mm-hmm. uh, for quite some, a little over a decade mm-hmm. now and getting out of the performance uh, process. Um, I, I just know that the stories have needed to be told and the way I was doing it was fine, but then it wasn't going to be new work. Like I can tell you we, in my four years of undergrad alone, they were going to just get reproduced and mm-hmm. reproduced. Right. And it's like, we need some new work. Let me ask you to expand on, on this need for new stories, this need for expanding the canon of, of black stories in America. Uh, describe for me what you see and what you want to see more of. I'll say history repeats itself. So I'm seeing some of the same, but just in different lingo. Um, We are more vocal about uh, mental health and therapy. And that was like, you prayed about it in black communities. You didn't really go to therapy and nothing was ever wrong with you that a butt whooping couldn't fix. So, (laughs) so I would like the stories to now reflect how much we've evolved from the things that we just don't talk about. Um, and, and to be honest, that's why I, I was, that's why I was also afraid, you know, when I, when I think about my dad being an alcoholic I know for sure my mom does not want the world to know that and I had to talk to her about this is not our embarrassment to hold or to have but someone else is probably being very hush hush about this until we can write about it and talk about it and talk about how we talked about it with him and how he finally opened up and we know where it came from. I was like, I, I never would have known that this was a history thing in his family had we had I not just said something. And my dad wasn't the type that because I said so, he'd have a conversation with you. But my mom was more of a, you know, because I said so and we don't talk about the bad things. Um, so when I got her to understand like, we're not the only family because she, for a while she really thought so. It's like, and, and we're not even the worst of it. I mean, he wasn't abusive. He was the sappy. I love my kids. I love my wife type of alcoholic. I know it's not, I'm not supposed to laugh at it, but he was that kind. Like, did I ever tell you I was proud of you? Oh, your graduation. He was that type of, so it's not necessarily the same story, but it's a story that we don't talk about. We're afraid to, to talk about those things, especially when it comes to black men and the problems in America, we want to try to protect and hold their secrets. And that's not helping us at all. Um, and that's why I think it's important. So if someone knows that we're brave of, uh, brave enough to, to talk about it, they're more inclined to read and also probably talk to their families about the things that are being held over their heads or the skeletons in the closet. What did you discover about your own voice in this process as well? How, did, you, know, how do you see your, your, your storyteller's voice changed? Uh, It was timid at first. It was, I was more worried about, um, I was more worried about uh, if it would be accepted um, and what, how would it come across? Um, And, and then in this essay too, I I have a few things about it, but in the other essays I write about like where I come from, Um, the neighborhood, you know, it's not necessarily the worst of poverty, but you know, it's a, it was a rough neighborhood. Um, my dad and drinking, uh, you know, those things, knowing that those were my stories, I was worried that I would be looked at as uh, less intelligent or, you know, those type of things that I had to stop worrying about. Um, but once how I got to like stop worrying about those things was the fact that once I, I felt that my story was good I, I no longer cared, you know, what anyone else thought. It was, you have to, I guess, have that type of confidence. And it, it just took a moment. But once I read it myself and it's like, wow, I like my story. I, I liked what I did here. Um, that helped me. Did I answer that question? <laughs> yes. 
what I want to get at is we talked about this before. Mm-hmm. So you you found your inner confidence as a storyteller. Um, how did you find comp- the confidence to be authentic on the page? Um, it was, well, it was a number of things, but one that I know for sure is um, when Kiese Lehman came to visit, I had already uh, read one of his books. It was the fiction Long Division. Um, and then he read out of Heavy, from Heavy for us. And it was so raw. But it was it was so honest. And it was unapologetically black. And that's the thing that I, that's the thing that I am in my circle, but was afraid to be in my writing. Because I was worried that no one would understand it. And it would be more of a, you know, judgmental thing versus like, this is beautiful art type of thing. Right. But what the shift for me after he visited and I read Heavy was understanding my demographic and then not caring about anything outside of that. And that allowed me to be as honest and as raw as I want it to be in my own work. Um, but that that's the thing that gave me the confidence. Jasmine Ward, too. Mm-hmm. Um, Men We we Reaped. One of my favorites. <sighs> man. Oh, man, I love that book. Um, it, the language is something that we I can understand. The language in Key Essays Heavy is something I can understand without him having little asterisks saying this is what this word means. It's like the book was for me. It's, you know, so that, and that's like, that's what I want to do. That's what I've been shying away from worried that I have to do all this explaining. And and it's like, no, this, this is just the story. You got to take it or leave it. The author can choose her audience. Yes. And write to it and find the truth in her art there. Right. Absolutely. And they will find that too. Dorothy, thank you for bringing your essay to Hear Tell and for being so generous with your your, your ideas and your, and your thinking. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Make sure to subscribe to Hear Tell on your favorite podcast listening service. To learn more about this podcast and the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program, in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia, head over to, and pay attention to this, www.grady.uga.edu slash graduate underscore studies slash here hyphen tell. That's H-E-A-R. You can find a link in the show notes. Today's episode featured music by Matt Whitmore, SRO, the Haru Percussion Group, and the Big Mean Sound Sheet. We'll be back soon with another true story 